Welcome to The Third Web, a podcast about the technologies powering the next generation of human civilization. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. On today's episode, Joshua Ashley Clayman co-founded the Blockchain and Smart Contracts Working Group at the law firm Morrison & Forrester and the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance's Legal Working Group. We caught up in person at a cafe in Central Park to discuss gender disparity in tech and ICO regulation, a subject of considerable interest right now. While we're all here, I'd like to shout out for the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance's upcoming event, Blockchain for Wall Street. It's a one-day event on the 14th at the New York Law School, and while it targets the financial industry, it's of interest to all who follow ICO regulation and private ledger deployment. There are some major global partnerships forming through the WSBA, and their event is a good place to gain an insight into the culture of the group. Ticket prices go up on Wednesday US time, so it's worth checking your calendar. A discount code can be found in the episode notes at thirdweb.net. And just to be clear, this is not a sponsored message. It's just a, a really worthwhile event to, uh, to attend if you have the opportunity. Over to you, Josh. So my name is Joshua Ashley Clayman. I am a lawyer. I am at Morrison & Forrester. For purposes of this material, though I'm speaking in my personal capacity, it's not legal advice, not investment advice, have to say that. Um, I, a couple of years ago, started, uh, I co-founded the Blockchain and Smart Contracts group at Morrison & Forrester. So what started out as a very small group has grown, so now we have members in all of our offices around the world. Um, which we have offices in several key hubs around the world. So, for example, Tokyo, Singapore, London, other places, um, U.S., obviously. And we now have over 70 lawyers around the world who, as part of their practice at our firm, are focusing on blockchain, smart contracts, and cryptocurrency matters. So, it's very exciting. By way of background, as a lawyer, I was trained as a finance and corporate lawyer. So, that's my background. I did a lot of leveraged finance and other types of deals. I became interested in blockchain. I had always been uh, heard about it, you know, but I didn't have a really deep, deep interest in knowing more until I started seeing what some of the banks were doing, or hearing rather about what some of the banks were doing, because some of the banks we work with, you know, on leveraged finance deals, and to see that they had, in some cases, incubators and other sort of development groups working on smart contracts and harnessing blockchain capabilities and that they also said in some respects we're trying to reduce legal spend that perked up my ears <laughs> so that was one of the drivers um, apart from that I chair the Wall Street blockchain uh, the Wall Street blockchain alliances legal working group and I'm also very active in activities involving women and promotion of women in tech What's the deal with women in tech? Why are there few women in tech? It's a great question. I think it's one that everyone is grappling with or many people are grappling with right now. I think, I mean, there are many ideas that are put forth. There, of course, are some who say, oh, well, women are not more represented in this space because of some biological difference. There are those who say that. Obviously, I don't agree with that. Um, there are others who say, you know, it's a lack of opportunity. Um, and I do think, I think part of it is the lack of opportunity. I also think that women, um, sometimes without knowing it, were tracked into areas without any conscious awareness. 
perhaps of those who are tracking us into those areas, like meaning like guiding us into that, or just because we don't see people represented in an area. And you know, when you're young, sometimes you look at those who are already established in a field or who are you know, well recognized as experts and you think, ah, I could see myself doing that. You know, and I, so I think one of the things I've, I've been trying to push, at least on, on some of social media things that I, I have, I try and say, hey, look at these women in blockchain, for example. Because I want it to be that when, ex, when reporters and others, when they consult the experts, it would be great if you saw more experts being consulted that were women. Because there's a lot of women who are doing really terrific, amazing things out there who are really strong, powerful women. And it would be great that when we think of people in tech, we don't just think of, of men and men in a very particular sort of um, image. I, I will say, I can say this too. So I have a daughter who, well I have, I have five kids, but my oldest daughter's 21. I had her when I was young, obviously. But she actually asked me one day, she said, mom, why is everyone trying to push this woman in tech? This was like not something recently she asked, but maybe like a year ago. And I said, her name is Sabrina. I said, Sabrina, you know, it, it is, it's important that there be more women in tech. And she said, well, what if women just aren't interested in this? And some women aren't, and I said, so for example, then this is what I told to her. I said to her, look, when you look at lucrative positions, okay, holding aside whether you're interested in it or not, when you look at positions that women or people can be very successful at and have higher earning power, those often are dominated by men. So it's important just for no other reason than just to, to be able to have, um, to have higher earning power and not just to be tracked into jobs that are, you know, less, that have less earning power. I know that's a cynical way to look at it, but, but I do think that there would be a lot more women who would be interested in pursuing opportunities in technology if they saw more models and if they actually knew how that could affect their bottom line and why that would matter. So. One of the blockchain luminaries, I say blockchain luminary, I'd almost call him a philosopher, uh, Chris DeRose, made the remark that there's a lot of people talking about the, there's a lot of people talking about women in tech, but there aren't a lot of women actually just learning to code. And I do know quite, I do know quite a few people who've just gone out, uh, set a three month coding bootcamp, and then applied their uh, abstract knowledge of blockchain to their newly developed coding skills and then find, f become really relevant in, in the space. And, um, and some of those have been women, but the vast majority have been men. And, so, and I know a lot of women in the space uh, who could be doing that, but who don't. Is there an element of this that is cultural or uh, faddish, I'm playing a bit of a devil's advocate here, um, in this kind of women in tech thing, where people are pushing it forward, but women aren't prepared to, to make that move? Um, I think that's, that's a great question. I, I do think that there is, there is a bit of, of attention behind this now. Um, I wouldn't call it a fad, but I would say, I think people are realizing across the board in terms of diversity, that it matters and it's important and that you can get different perspectives that would be valuable, um, even for consumer-driven pushes, to have a diversity of perspectives. So I do think that there is an element of attention on this now that I guess typically may not be, 
but I, I think this, I think there's something there. Now I posted on LinkedIn, I don't know if you ever saw it, but I put a simple post, no photos, no, no interesting text. I literally just had a post and I said, you know, how about we recognize some badass women in blockchain? And I listed a few um, that I knew. I don't know if you've seen this, but, but it was viewed, by now I'm not sure how many it, it's been viewed, but it, was, it ended up being viewed as of a few days ago, over 87,000 times. Now for me, that's going viral because I'm just a regular lawyer and I didn't have any pictures or anything else. And people were adding names of women around the world. So it clearly caught on to some, on to some sort of feeling that people had because my posts normally don't get 87,000 views. I also think this, if you actually look through some of the responses, they were very telling. So a few, like if you went a few comments down, some unnamed person said, uh, I prefer nice ass. So that was like, it was very interesting that that was when I'm seeing badass women talking about like powerful women, that, that that's what was interjected. So I wasn't sure how to respond, but I knew I had to respond somehow. So I said, well, if that's what you prefer, we'd be happy to call you that, right? And then he, I guess, got the joke and he was like, yeah, just don't call me jackass. <laughs> and I was kind of like, okay, you said it. But um, anyway, so he had like a good sense of humor at the end of the day. But I think it's those kinds of things, those kinds of messages where when you start saying like, look, here are some women who are really like powerful women who are, are really important players in this space, you have people sometimes jokingly, but still publicly coming forward and minimizing it. Also, it was interesting, if you look through the comments, some of the women, some very well-established women in the space had indicated that they have been at meetups, for example, where they are asked, you know, are they biologically different because they're, they're good at, at coding or other very like uncomfortable situations. So, I mean, I will say there is a flip side. Sometimes it's nice to be a woman in a technology space because you stand out, because there are fewer. The same thing in finance. You know, there are generally, in my experience in, in law and finance, there have been fewer women. So I have liked that, but I, but I realize just by virtue of that one post, it is easy, like when you're in a position and you may have some people who could be really good at this, who could have some of the answers, half of the answers, or at least a quarter of the answers, you know, that we're looking for to help move things really forward. And they're completely being blocked at the door just because there's an unwelcome culture that some people may not feel comfortable joking back or, or just pushing through. So. One thing I think is really interesting about blockchain, and some people have said, have compared it to like the next coming of the internet, you know, really like a paradigm shift, really kind of, as I think about it, like an inflection point for technology development. I see that inflection point as an opportunity for more women and other people who have not been involved in the status quo to get involved because it's new to everyone. So yes, if you don't have the technological know-how, yes, you are in a, at a disadvantage somehow. But for example, if I put it in a legal perspective, for what I typically did in corporate and finance, some people are practicing today who have been practicing for 35 years or longer. Have they seen more deals than I have? Yes, right? Do they have perhaps a, a deeper network than I do or a deeper reservoir of, of the law and just experiences? Of course, but when you look at blockchain, just generally, 
No one has been doing it for 35 years. It's new. Whether you are a lawyer that's been practicing for 11 years like me, or whether you've been doing it for 50 years, you're not gonna know any more than, uh, than anyone knows right now. So I, I think that that, just as it's an opportunity for younger lawyers to really establish themselves in this new exciting space, which is still an angle of technology, you know, it is still, in my mind, part of women in tech, even though it's law. I think there's a similar opportunity in blockchain for women. That's the most sober um, discussion I've actually managed to get about women in blockchain. Really? Yeah, well, because sometimes it's really bad. Like, last, um, last consensus conference, had like the women in blockchain lunch. Oh, the lunch with men. Yeah, men were there. It was at the same time as like the rootstock announcement, <laughs> which is about Segwit 2X. Yeah. So you had like the actual thing going on. It's like the most important part of the whole conference. And the women in blockchain thing was on simultaneously. So it was like the most <laughs> counterproductive thing I'd ever seen. And can I say one more thing related to that last thing? Is I think it's important, and this is something also that people brought up in that LinkedIn post response. So another person in that that chain, they said he said, well, what about you know the disabled in blockchain? What about the um, like what about trans people in blockchain? What about, you know, other people in blockchain? And what about minorities in blockchain? And I, I wrote back and I said, you know, I, I do think, yes, if you want to represent that, I'm sure that people are feeling marginalized for a variety of reasons, <laughs> you know, and there may be barriers to entry. And I said, and I'm not minimizing this whatsoever. But when you think about women, women are roughly half, possibly more than half of the population. That's a big chunk of people who are perhaps feeling left out. Whereas, you know, some of those other th things like disabled in blockchain. That, that could be a subset, you know, there could be some overlap. But I think uh, ignoring the, the fact that half the population is a woman, you know, and that, that if we don't have representation for that, that is a big, that is a big starting point, you know. And I think some, some ways that people sometimes minimize the importance is to point to all the other types of disenfranchised or, or uh, underrepresented groups, but women are half the population, so. All right, now I'm gonna shut up about that. What percentage of ICOs are? That's an excellent question. I don't think anyone has a figure right now. What I can say is we're learning more about what is legal and what is not legal. When the SEC this summer came out with guidance, it chose the DAO to focus on in its enforcement action. So I'm sure you're familiar with the DAO for other reasons as well, including the smart contract vulnerability that it suffered that caused ultimately the hard fork in Ethereum. So it was already having some challenges before the SEC decided to focus on it. But what they basically said was, if you're not familiar with it already, they said, okay, here's the DAO token. The DAO token looks a lot like a security. Um, we're going to determine whether tokens are securities using the Howey test, which is based on a, an over 70-year-old case. It's a facts and circumstances case. Um, and look, the platform that the DAO tokens were traded on looks a lot like an exchange. That exchange, it should have registered as a national exchange or found an exception such as an ATS. Which exchange? Do you mean the way that the tokens were initially distributed or are you refer referring to like Poloniex and uh, 
and Bittrex and these uh, these centralized exchanges? Well, I think that's a great question too, because I think uh, the secondary trading that's happening on these exchanges, the the exchanges realize that this is a concern. And so many of them, particularly in the US, have started saying, we don't want any tokens on that may be a security because they don't want to have to become an ATS, for example. Um, and they don't want to run afoul of securities laws or become you know, a national securities exchange. So, all right, stepping back for a second, with, with the guidance from the SEC, some people say it wasn't that helpful because they say, look, the Dow, what it basically was doing, it was a virtual venture fund. They basically put a venture fund, you know, and, and turned it into tokens, you know, blockchain. And so, of course, even without having the guidance from the SEC, many lawyers in the space, many lawyers in the space, including lawyers, including us, we were advising folks, look, you need to be careful with these token sales because some of these tokens look a lot like securities. And in fact, people would say to us, well, the Dow did it. The Dow was fine, like they didn't get in trouble. And so this was very validating in some respects to, to lawyers. What's interesting though, is the SEC said that some tokens may be securities. They didn't say though that all tokens may be securities. And since there is this facts and circumstances test, there's a possibility that some tokens and token sales do not need, you know, are not sales of securities. What's the, what's the facts and circumstances? Uh, a lot of things come into, into play. So it's not just, a lot of people think, they look at the, the Howey factors and they, they, um, they focus solely on the token. But there's a lot of facts and circumstances beyond that. For example, um, manner of sale. If I have a token and it is not a security at all, hypothetically, this, this token, but I'm saying, yeah, come on, buy it. You're going to make returns of like 100%, you know? Then it's looking like a security irrespective of whether, you know, of whether the token it, itself, if you envision it as like a round token, like a coin, of whether that would apply, um, uh, as of whether that would be a security. Now, one thing with the, with the, um, the most helpful thing from my perspective about the SEC guidance is that it really show, showed others around the world that just because you leave the U.S. to do a token sale, it doesn't mean that U.S. securities laws don't apply. So for example, the Dow was launched out of Switzerland, okay? Because they marketed, issued, and sold to U.S. persons, the U.S. securities laws still apply. There's the long arm of the U.S. And so what, what we say to clients now, generally, and what people say to clients now, is no matter where in the world you go, you still have to worry about the U.S. if the U.S. is a target market for you. And, and okay, I see that you want to say something, but I, so go ahead. I know everyone listening to this is going to say, okay, yeah, so what you do is you just don't sell, you just block all U.S. IPs. Which is actually, many believe, insufficient just because you can easily throw your list. Facts and circumstances. Yeah. Um, likewise, uh, say you make this token that's totally not a security and you don't say it's a security, but the climate and culture of the, uh, this kind of investment uh, environment, right, means that people are, going to tr you, people are going to treat it like a security and you know that people are going to treat it like a security. Well, I will say this. I think that there is still room, and maybe some people have a different view. 
I do think that there is room and that it's important, in my view, to preserve the space for people to be able, potentially, to structure something, irrespective of the climate, where it may not be a security. Because the SEC did not come out and say all of these are securities. And as you look at the regulators around the world who have come, come out and spoken about this, including, for example, Canada, which, which gave similar guidance to the U.S., also um, Hong Kong gave similar guidance, so did uh, many other jurisdictions, including Malaysia, um, Australia. Some places like Gibraltar want to be token cell destinations, and they, as you may know, they have a distributed ledger technology framework that goes into effect January 1st. And in their guidance, they actually said, you know, they're thinking about also producing a token framework that would go along with the principles-based distributed ledger framework. So some places like there, like Isle of Man, like Cayman, many of those jurisdictions see a great um, potential vertical opportunity with these token sales. And I think what you, what you see if you look at the guidance from various countries around the world, including, for example, Switzerland was one of the most recent. Um, they're very careful to say, we're worried about scams, we're worried about fraud, we want to protect our investors, our citizens. Um, we also worry about know, know your customer laws and anti-money laundering and not financing terrorism. But many of them say, we think that these may be securities, some of these tokens may be securities. But I have yet to see one that says all of these are securities. And even if you look at China and South Korea, which have banned token sales, if you look at least from the translations at the concerns that they're pointing at, they're pointing at the same concerns. Fraud, scams, terrorist financing, and some of the tokens being unregistered securities. So I don't, I don't think anyone in the world at the regulator's level has said that all of these are securities. Let me go back to my original question though. And obviously this is not as a representative of any law firm or anything like that. If you had to, if you were to take a stab, would you say that 70% are securities? I, I don't know the answer for that because I'm not seeing every token sell. I would say many, many of them are securities. I would many, say- Many, many? Is it yes. two, like- Many, many. Okay. I would say, I would say most of them are likely to be securities. I can't give an exact figure, not only because I haven't seen all of the universe of them, but also because I'm a lawyer and I'm very risk averse about saying, you know, pinning it down that way. But I would say many of them are securities. Um, and I think that one thing that folks are doing that is helpful or may be helpful to address this is the idea that lawyers can help founders to structure tokens and to provide for characteristics for tokens that make them look less like a security. So that if you were to look at a continuum, because there's no bright line test as to where, you know, okay, here is a, a security, here's not. Um, and I actually think it's a, it is a disservice to the industry generally that people just colloquially refer to utility tokens because a token can have utility and still be a security. By the same token, so to speak, um, you know, it is helpful at least to have some language that but when I hear the word utility token, when I hear someone say I have a utility token, what I hear is I have a token that I'm trying to say is not a security. I don't think of it in terms of, okay, just because you have utility, you know, your, your token can be used for something. I don't think 
you know, that is a line that we can draw. Because that's just a really shallow reading, a very face value reading of the Howie test, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, this is all facts and circumstances. What I will say, what I was going to say about structuring the token and a, a conservative approach, certainly the most conservative approach is to say, I'm going to assume my token's a security and I'm going to sell it in compliance with U.S. securities laws and whatever other laws around the world where I may have purchasers where I'm marketing, issuing, and selling. And so I'm going to do a registered offer. You could also say, okay, it may be a security and I'm going to market, issue, and sell in the U.S. only to accredited investors. Right? That's another way to do it and just say I want the people to have a certain level of wealth or a certain level of income over a period of time. And then also market to non-U.S. persons in accordance with with those applicable laws. But back to the thing about structuring the token, we can help you generally as lawyers to, to create a token that has characteristics that make it look less like a security or at least addresses some of the stress spots. And what we sometimes say is, okay, we'll help you in that respect, but we also recommend that if you're gonna market issue and sell to US persons, that you only limit it to U.S. accredited investors. That way you're in a position where you say, we don't think we have a security here, but just in case we're wrong and you say we do, we've already complied with the U.S. securities laws. Another sort of interesting thing that if, if you're interested I can tell you about is a little bit about the collaboration across law firms and across lawyers in this space. So one of the interesting things that I've seen in this space, which is a little bit different from many other areas of the law, is that since this is an emerging area, it's an emerging technology, it is an area where there isn't a lot of bright line guidance or guidance at all in terms of how we proceed. What I've noticed is that lawyers across firms have been collaborating in ways that we typically don't. So for example, as part of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance Legal Working Group, we have a number of of large law firms, of other law firms in the space that are very focused on blockchain and that have a lot of token sales. So what we end up doing is we've been having, and in fact, the four o'clock call that I, that I mentioned that I have, we're having near daily calls to basically talk through scenarios in the token sales space to share views, not, not share client confidences like or you know breach confidentiality, but to say like, what happens if this? What happens if someone wants to pay their employees and tokens? What happens if they're paying a third party consultant in tokens? All these sort of questions that come up where we want a common view. We want to know, like, well, what do you think? What do you think? Because none of us wants to be the outlier giving bad advice. And so we announced actually publicly that the WSBA Legal Working Group will be uh, providing prior to Thanksgiving a private sector framework for token sales. And it'll be QA style, or at least our first thought leadership will be QA style. Uh, question and answers where we talk about actual practical circumstances and aspects of tokens and we weigh in on it as a group. And so the thought is that once we put this out there with the strength of many lawyers from prominent law firms who are working on these behind us, then others from the from the community can kind of weigh in, say whether they agree or disagree. But that way we have kind of a common view as to what we think are are kind of safe approaches and and considered risks because I know the regulators are very interested in this space. I suspect that as practitioners though, we see a greater deal flow, right? So 
we can actually say, okay, well, this is a peculiarity for this deal, or this is something I keep seeing again and again and again. Is this dispositive? Does this mean it's automatically a security? What do you guys think? So um, I think that that kind, of, that kind of give and take across lawyers, across law firms, is something really helpful and is one way we're trying to be compliant. So uh, recently, uh, Tezos, I know, you know Tezos, right? Yeah. So that thing's exploded, uh, it seems. Um, which is not surprising because you have some technical minds, people with brilliant technical minds, put in a position of managing a volume of funds far beyond what they should be managing. And that's obviously, that's not a, um, right, that's not a bright line statement about who should be managing $200 million or not. But I don't think Arthur and Kathleen Brightman should be just to take a stab. I don't know them very well, but I've seen them at events and they just don't give off that vibe, right? Um, I've also spoken to Kathleen and, you know, she's a technical mind, but I just, I feel like they represent people who should not be raising and uh, and managing such a huge pool of funds. That There should be a um, someone with experience in that kind of activity involved in that process. Well, I do have to say this, because I know Kathleen, and so I am biased. Right? So I, I wouldn't, I would never say that I did not think that she would be able to be capable of managing that amount of money. I do hear your point, though, as a general matter about people in the technology space sometimes um, being very bright in one area, such as technology itself, versus whether or not someone has business experience. Holding aside Kathleen, because I, I just want to say that. Um, what I do think is interesting, though, is with the whole thing with Tezos, again, sensitive about this topic, but I do think that by setting up a Swiss foundation, I do think that they were very mindful um, in, in trying to be sure that there was good governance. Uh, the Swiss foundation model, I'm not a Swiss lawyer, so this is not legal advice, but based on my experience on on deals and in talks with um, friends in Switzerland who are lawyers, including at MME and other law firms. My understanding is that the Swiss Foundation model, you know, its very strength is its detriment. It's a, it's a governmental entity, it's quasi-governmental, and once you set the purpose, you can't change it. Um, it's, or it's very difficult to change it. This could be very good if you're an investor and you want to make sure that the founders are not somehow controlling things. It's also very difficult as a founder to get money back out, like profits back out. You actually have to, as I understand it, have third-party, like arm's-length agreements with companies. So, for example, if I'm, a, if I'm a founder and I have a company and you're the foundation, I can have an arm's-length contract with you and perform services for the foundation and the foundation can pay me. But I can't just siphon out money. So I do think... And, and also, I should say this, because it is a governmental entity, or quasi-governmental entity, the, the governing powers are actually somewhat divorced from the powers of founders. So the, the actual people who are running the foundation have a tremendous amount of power, and they consider proposals, right? You can't, in, some, in the same way, you should speak probably with a Swiss lawyer about this, but you can't in the same way bind in the future, a foundation, you can't say, okay, the foundation is going to issue you tokens. You can submit a proposal to the foundation that it do that. But so actually, in the example that you gave with Tezos, there was a real separation of, of governance from the money 
the money, the, because the issuer was a Swiss foundation. So the money is in the Swiss foundation. And the dispute, as I understand it, again, with the sensitivities that I said, if you end up with governance of the Swiss foundation that you don't trust, that is a greater challenge, right? It's not so much that the founders still have control of the money because they don't. So I think that there are ways to do compliant token sale offerings right now. And we have a model. It's called the securities laws, right? So if you do things in compliance with that, you will be in compliance. It's more a matter of whether, where you draw the line between something that is essentially a sale of software, you know, versus whether it is like a security. If you have something that at the end of the day looks like a pre-sale of say a, I don't want to use a specific brand, but you know, a large well-known software company pre-selling some of its software, you know, it. I think you run the risk of, if you look at something, you could make almost anything into a security. But I think it is important to know there are, there are frameworks that exist that do apply. And the securities laws, the question of whether the token is or is not a security, that should be the beginning of the inquiry, not the end. So even if it's not a security, you still have to worry about money transmitter laws. You still have to worry about a whole bunch of different things. I think there are a whole bunch of really interesting questions that no one has even gotten to yet. For example, flowback issues. If you have tokens that end up back in the US, you know, do you, could you trigger reporting requirements? If you have, um, if you have tokens that may look like they are, I don't know, not a security, but you know and you're trying very hard as a founder to have them listed on an unregulated exchange, like what what happens there? There's so many, There, it's funny that the reason that I, I got interested in this space in a very real manner was this idea that if I didn't, then lawyers would somehow be out of business because of these smart contracts, because there's so many new issues that are arising with distributed ledger technology. I mean, you know, we have hedge funds in the space that are either popping up or existing hedge funds that now want to trade tokens, uh, cryptocurrencies and, you know, different altcoins. How do you deal with, with traditional questions that have already been answered in other, other circumstances? Like, how do you deal with custody? How do you deal with valuation? How do you deal with many, many, um, other things and you have questions now you have financial institutions like banks and others that are potentially going to be making you know loans to finance the acquisition of players in the space whether token issuers or you know unregulated exchanges the analysis of the risks and the the new type of developments that are happening so rapidly it's um, it's actually coming up with legal questions, even where we previously thought they were answers and settled law. So where can people find out more about what you do personally and, uh, and do you write or anything? Or do you blog? I do. Um, I don't have a separate blog. I do from time to time write musings on my LinkedIn, like actual articles. I sometimes write articles that are published in, in publications. Um, so if you Google me, Joshua Ashley Clayman with a K, um, you can find out more. Also, if you go to Morrison Forrester's website, we do have a, a web resource center for the Blockchain and Smart Contracts group, which will tell you more about what the law firm's doing. But in terms of just my, my personal um, thoughts and articles, I have, 
I have some things on the web as well. One thing I should say, the reason I say Joshua Ashley Clayman is there is a well-known um, University of Chicago uh, professor in some kind of psychology, like industrial psychology named Joshua Clayman with the same spelling. And so if you find something by a guy named Joshua Clayman, has nothing to do with blockchain. That was it. A big thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for the tunes. You can reach me on Twitter, at Arthur Falls. Of course, you should subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast manager. This feed will probably still be called the Ether Review, but it will update in time. I'll get you guys next week.